Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the final part of this bumper end of year Q&A podcast. In the previous two parts we've looked at uh, teaching, Katrin Bunkai and impact drills, that was in episode one. In episode two we looked at self-defence, training, teaching children and female self-defence. And in this third and final part we're going to look at general karate questions, cross-training, questions relating to pressure points and a miscellaneous section to mop everything up. So thank you to everyone who's listened uh, so far. And i just like, again like to reiterate, I'm not for one second saying that my answers are the definitive answers. Obviously, you know, the sign of any healthy community is that there's uh, disagreement and dissent. And obviously the, there is within the, the martial arts and the practical karate community. There's uh, different ideas of how things should be done. I obviously believe in my ideas. You obviously believe in yours. So I'm not for one second saying that my ideas should trump yours. I'll just give you my ideas honestly and hope that you find them interesting irrespective of of whether you agree or disagree. I'd also just like to thank everyone for the support in 2017. I'm just getting this podcast out on Christmas Eve, so therefore, you know, Christmas Day tomorrow. So I hope you've all been nice. You know, you're on the nice list for Santa's arrival tomorrow. And again, it seems a fitting time just to thank everyone for the support. I've really enjoyed uh, spending time with you all. Seminars have been great fun this year. There's nothing better than spending time with people who share your passions. And the, your seminars are a great opportunity for me to uh, to do that. So thank you to everyone for your support during uh, 2017. Um, yes, yeah, so Santa's arrival tomorrow. Interestingly enough, I've often been compared to Santa. Uh, I think Rory Miller was the first one. Who, uh, first time I met Rory, he said that I reminded him of somebody and he couldn't think who it was. And then later on he said it was Santa Claus. <laughs> uh, jolly Northern bloke with a beard, I think. And then uh, my friend Ken Baker said the same thing recently. He, uh, Ken's from the US and Ken, he said that uh, I reminded him of Father Christmas. He says, you turn up, you drop martial gifts and then you disappear again. So, yeah, Santa, it's my time of year, I think. So yeah, let's um, get on to the general questions then. Again, these have been quite long, these ones. You know, each has been like over 70 minutes long. So as I said at the first one, if I was you, I'd listen to this in, in short sections, you know, 20 minutes at a time, something like that, yeah, you know, in, in order to digest everything that's that's said. Uh, and again, because they have, you know, the, these what, three and a half hours, I think, all three of them put together. And they've taken some putting together as well. They've taken quite a bit of it. We missed Star Wars. We missed Star Wars. Me and Becky had Star Wars tickets booked um, to go and see the new Star Wars film. Becky's never seen a Star Wars movie, any of them, would you believe? But I'm a big Star Wars fan, having grown up on it. And uh, so we, we had tickets booked, but there was no way we'd be able to get this episode out to you on time if we went and seen it. So we forfeited our Star Wars tickets. That's how much getting this podcast out means to us both. Yeah, so I hope you enjoy it. I, I miss Star Wars for this. <laughs> right, yeah, so thanks very much again, and uh, we'll now t- discuss the general karate questions. The world's fastest-growing martial art is troll dough. Practitioners typically train in their mother's basement in a uniform that is made up of a superhero t-shirt with pizza stains. Practitioners of Troldo believe the easiest way to counter any method, any method at all, is simply typing would not work into the internet. Actual physical training is believed to be unnecessary and sparring involves writing insults about each other's mothers. So we've got a number of general karate questions or general martial arts questions and we'll look at those in in this section. So the first one's from uh, Graham Palmer and he asks, uh, when was the word traditional first used to refer to a certain type of karate? And he said, generally the prefix traditional refers to 3K karate. Do you regard this as traditional karate? If not, what is your definition of traditional karate? 
You know, so the first time I saw the word traditional uh, being used, uh, it, like you think about, the, well, obviously started karate in the, the 1980s. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, it was used to mark the difference between sport karate and non-sporting karate. But as Graham quite rightly points out, the word traditional is not being used correctly there. You could make a strong case. So by 3K karate, that's a term that I coined to define that kind of pseudo-traditional karate. So what 3K karate is, kata, kion, and kumite, and never the three shall meet. That So every version of karate will have Kion, Kata and Kumite but what makes 3K karate 3K karate is the, th the three are practiced as separate disciplines so you do Kion to get good at Kion Kata to get good at Kata don't really do any Bunkai if there is any Bunkai done it's from lunging punches when people attack along the compass points two person drills don't reflect the reality of real violence it's one step three step five step sparring with people doing formal punches from a very long distance uh, and the sparring even if they're a non-competitive group will still generally be done in a, a sporting way so low guards bouncing back and forth uh, jump in land a technique jump back out scream at the top of your voice everyone stops and resets you know that that that's pretty much what 3k karate is and how it's practiced so but it's that's not traditional uh, that that's been around in its present form since kind of the 1940s onwards which is not a long period of time really so if you look at the definition of traditional it means adhering to a long-established procedure. So the longer the procedure's been established, the more traditional something is. So if it's been around from the 1940s, that's not that traditional when you compare something that's been around for hundreds of years prior to that. So I would define uh, traditional karate is the kind of karate that I would adhere to. You know, So karate that's functional, pragmatic, that does kata with a means to... Uh, understand the bunkai and the applications that includes uh, live practice that uh, it's all done as an integrated whole, the kata supports the key, uh, the, the, the key on, the key on uh, supports the kata, the kata gives rise to the bunkai, the bunkai gives rise to the two person drills, the two person drills find the ultimate expression in the sparring, it's all linked together uh, and that ironically is, is more akin to what the karate was of, of the past the other thing of course is the the, the tradition if you like uh, there hasn't been uh, ever been a tradition of dogmatic adherence to a to a, a given way of doing things karate has evolved with every single generation it's only when the 3k karate appeared and 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 the re you've gotten you've no longer got a functional measure because they're no longer measuring by effect so you say well what what's what how do you know what good is if if whether it works or not is no longer the measure. How do we define what good is? So they define good as being, well, according to this datum. So they go, this is how we want the cutter done, exactly like this, and if you do it like this, it's good. Unlike those guys down the road who have the thumb in a slightly different position and therefore they're doing it bad, they're doing it wrong. So you have this, uh, these artificial measures starting to come up. But when you don't have those, of course, everyone's uh, looking for optimum effect. You know, that's what they're looking for. So I have changed things and tweaked things. And if I find a more efficient way of training or a new drill that I find useful, I'll, I'll bring that in. I've never altered the kata that I was taught because I saw no need to. But I wouldn't be adverse to that if I saw a need to do it. But, um, but I've certainly changed, you know, with, with, Lots of things. The karate that I first learned had one-step sparring in it. I got rid of that and replaced it with all the bunkai drills. I, I no longer teach things that are designed for competition karate because we don't do competition karate anymore. That that kind of stuff. I've brought in a load of impact drills and pad drills which weren't part of our 
practice. So I, I see traditional karate has been one that was prepared to evolve as well. It's like Funakoshi said, times change, the world changes, and obviously martial arts must change too. So again, traditional, ironically, traditional is something that evolves too. So that would be my definition of traditional. Something that's in line with the objectives of the karate of the past, that's practiced in an holistic way, and that is not adverse to evolving if it can improve. You know, why wouldn't you want to improve? Um, and uh, Graham goes on, he said, we can no longer just use the words karate to define what we practice. Should we prefix karate to differentiate the approach of karate practice, i.e. sport, budo, practical fitness, etc.? And, and you do see an awful lot of that, uh, people using various uh, prefixes and suffixes. So I always like Gavin Mulholland uh, in my uh, forum. Uh, Gavin once said that karate as a term was like athletics now, you know, and I thought that's a very good way to express it. If you have a, a shot putter and a marathon runner, uh, both athletes uh, doing athletics, but their actual uh, disciplines within that couldn't be more different. So it's the same with karate now. That there is not one karate; there are many karates. So there's, uh, as we say, this sport karate, and then this karate practices an art, and this karate practice for health and fitness, and this karate practices a vehicle to develop. Uh, physical and character traits in children and then there's karate practice for self-defense and you know there's loads of different karates so i think it is a good idea to use a, a, a prefix or a suffix that you think is uh, applicable and that you think will work well with the karate as you practice it uh, so for me in my own dojo we use the prefix jisten so you know actual combat actual conflict uh, but we do have the do on the end as well. So we call what we do Jisten Karate Do, which, uh, again, would seem like uh, an oxymoron to some people. But we that's our view. You know, we've got it's karate for real combat, but we're not adverse to the fitness, health, and character development aspects as well. You know, so th that we use a label that we think accurately reflects what we, we do. I know some people think that do relates to the 3K karate, but I, I don't necessarily think that's true. Certainly, if you read the writings of the old masters, they didn't quite make that distinction. And some people prefer to use karate jitsu if they're talking about karate as a combative point of view. But again, that was never done traditionally as well. Um, if you were to mention karate jitsu in Japan, that would sound a little bit odd to them. You know, there was karate and then there was karate do, you know. So, um, you choose the one that works for you, I think. But it is, it is always good to define what kind of karate you're doing because there are many different kinds of karate. So if you're doing practical karate, it's a good idea to label it that. And you can use the English word for that as well, of course. Sport karate it would be a good idea to label it that because they are very, very different. There is no one karate anymore in the way that there was in the past where there was one karate practiced for um, civilian self-protection. That was the, the, the original, if you like. Now, now, as an offshoot of that, there's lots and lots of different karates. It, it can be useful to use these suffixes and prefixes to make sure we accurately define for ourselves and others what form of karate that we're actually practicing. Next question we have comes from Andy Allen via email, and he said, Funakoshi was pivotal in popularizing karate in Japan. Was this just because he, uh, by virtue of having the right character, was the right fit to be accepted by the Japanese with his noble disposition and advocacy for the dull version of karate? Or did his physical skills play a part of karate's acceptance in Japan? So you know, I think what we're getting at here is there's, there's a view that uh, Funakoshi was not the most physically accomplished of karateka of his generation. Um, you know, there was others who were perhaps technically more competent and, and combatively more able. 
and and yet Funakoshi was the one that everyone regards as being the father of modern karate. And if I can, you know, I, I can't speak because I obviously I never witnessed Funakoshi and his contemporaries spar or fight or do things, so I wouldn't know. But it was certainly said by others that you know they felt that Funakoshi wasn't as able as as they themselves were. But they would say that, wouldn't they? Uh, but for me, I I think that uh, we owe a massive debt of gratitude to Funakoshi because it, it, with, without him there would be no karate. You know, irrespective of what level of physical skill he had, because he was he was bright, smart, and articulate. Was able to see what version of karate was needed for Japan at that time. So what was fashionable was the the doll version. Judo it was huge. So Funakoshi saw, okay, we need to adopt geese and we need to adopt a belt system and um, we need to adopt the doll ethos. And if we do all of these things, then karate will be accepted and karate will spread. You know, he made it Japanese. He stopped calling it Chinese hand and. And went for the empty hand. Something Hanashiro had done prior to that, but Funakoshi was the guy who kind of really picked that up and, and ran with it. He, you know, gave the kata new Japanese names, all this kind of stuff. Uh, made it uh, a good fit for the, the culture that he was trying to sell the art in. And then as a result of that, it spread worldwide. There would be no karate without Funakoshi. Uh, so sometimes, you know, people. In retrospect, or yeah, well, we wish he'd never made it so dull, and we wish he'd never took the teeth out of it, and you know, maybe we'd be better if this had never happened. But with no Funakoshi, there is no karate. None of us, it doesn't matter what style either, um, none of us would have been practicing it, right? Even if you're not a Shotokan practitioner, with no Funakoshi, there would have been no karate because it wouldn't have spread in that way. He was the guy who made it popular, uh, and if he hadn't have done that, it would have been a thing practiced by a handful of Okinawans. Funakoshi, was the guy who opened the doors for the, the other teachers of the other styles to establish what they did in Japan. So there would be no Gojiru in the way that there is today, or Shitoru, or, or any of the other styles in, in that way, without uh, out Funakoshi. Um, at, at best, it would have been a, a, an obscure martial art practiced by a handful of people. It would not have been the global phenomena that it is. Pretty much every town in the, you know, the Western world will have a dojo in it. And, and that's, you know, massive uh, testament to Funakoshi's vision. So I think primarily, again, it, it wasn't that he physically impressed everybody and everyone went, wow. It was he was smart enough to realize what was wanted. So in virtue of the question, um, it was because Funakoshi was the right character. He was the right man at the right time to, to, to do what he did. Um, and I think we owe him a, a debt of, of gratitude for that, irrespective of what his, his actual physical skills were. And, uh, you know, if we take someone like Motobu, for example, you know, Funakoshi and Motobu were great rivals. I think it would be fair to say, judging by what we know of them both, that Motobu was probably, almost certainly, physically more able than Funakoshi and combatively better than Funakoshi. But Motobu wouldn't have been capable of doing what Funakoshi did. He, w- he wouldn't have been capable of spreading karate in the same way. Indeed, ironically, you can argue that the reason we're interested in Motobu today is because Funakoshi did what he did, karate spread, and then we're looking back saying, ah, we'd like to look at a more practical version of this. Oh, there's this guy here. So, ironically, although they didn't like each other very much, um, Funakoshi helped establish an interest in karate, which was good for Motobu in the long term. And Motobu helped establish a pragmatism in karate, which was good for the karate that Funakoshi wished to promote in the long term. So, perhaps at the time, although they hated one another, in the longer term, they've, they've helped one another. So the next question we have is from uh, Mike Frecklington, and Mike wants to talk about the models of the masters, which I think is a, a really uh, good topic and, and one that I, I might do a full podcast on at some point. 
So one of the things that karate claims is it, it claims that it can help develop character. And obviously we've done podcasts on that in the past. And I, and I believe it can. But as been said before, karate aims to develop character. It doesn't guarantee it. All right. So if we assume that it does guarantee it and we uh, put the old masters on a bit of a pedestal, we're causing problems for ourselves, I think. So if we look back at the past masters, what we should do is say, look, let's look at them objectively. And in some cases, they are very admirable traits, things we can admire about them and aspire to you know, in our, for to having ourselves. But in other cases, we can look at them and say, well, that's not good. That like all human beings, they're all shades of grey, right? So if we think of things like these uh, Kayan's quotes, a classic example. So Kayan's, you know, karate master, and yet Kayan is on record of having said that to be a true martial artist, training in karate is not enough. One must associate with prostitutes and get involved in drinking competitions. So that, that's obviously amoral. We can point to other masters, you know, that again, Motobu said a similar thing, where he said it is important for the karateka to drink heavily and engage in other fun activities. Uh, otherwise their karate will lack character. Itosu eventually kicked uh, Motobu out of his dojo for constantly going into the red light district and having fights. So we, we can look back at the history and, and see things that we think well that's just it's not right you know pe- good people wouldn't do those things so and so and we need to look at that and we need to be honest about that and we need to look at it with what and all because if we look at the past masters as some kind of infallible warrior sage it therefore follows that the modern day masters or modern day higher graded karateka will likewise be warrior sages will be infallible characters uh, and then and then people can almost set themselves up in a position of guru and it almost becomes a little bit cult like you know we, we have to watch that because there's again a high ranking karate is no guarantee of, of a person's character it's just it's simply not I can think of at least a dozen people I know high ranking karateka who at one time were well respected who are now in jail for sexual offences uh, I can think of, you know, karateka, again, high-ranking ones involved in embezzlement, fraud, theft, uh, drug dealing, all kinds of things. So so the, the fact that they have a, a high grade in karate doesn't necessarily follow that they are people of good character. So while we'll use the martial arts as a vehicle to push good character, we need to acknowledge it doesn't guarantee it. And of course, that's true of everything. You can point to plenty of people who've been, been various world religions and uh, p- people who've been high standing within the religious communities who, again, have found to be people that have been severely lacking in character uh, but again this points to the fact that just because you would expect you know a, a priest or a pastor or someone like that to be of good character it doesn't guarantee it and there's a similar thing going on with uh, with with karate um, so we, we need to make sure that we're, we're mindful of the fact that everyone is shades of gray and we shouldn't treat high-ranking karate as if they are infallible we shouldn't put them in charge of our lives in any significant meaningful way uh, and we should be mindful that they that no guarantee that high-ranking grade means that you're going to be of good character. Uh, and also, I, th- I think, again, as I've said this when we come to the history of it, I always think the true history is more interesting and informative than the false history. So we may like to pretend that, you know, karate started in the Shaolin Temple when uh, Bodhimara got there and found the monks. It's all nonsense. It's completely untrue. It's a debunked myth from the 15th century. It's wrong. It's not right. But it, but it sounds good and we kind of like it. And we like the idea of that the masters were like what we expect the masters to be like in the Kung Fu movies. You know, the, again, wise old warrior sages, but they weren't. 
that they, they weren't. And, and if we acknowledge that they were not, that I think will be better for karate too, because it acknowledges that the modern day masters of today will be, you know, they may very well be good people, but we should judge people on their merits. And whether they're of good character or not, it, it cannot be determined by the, the rank they hold. It's not guaranteed that a, a fifth Dan is a nicer person than a first Dan or even a tenth Q. You know, it, you've got to judge everyone by the merits. So, yeah, the morals of the masters, uh, uh, just like everybody else. In some cases, they were very moral people. In other cases, not so moral. And in some cases, they were very moral and very admirable in one area and in other areas, not so much just like people of today. So the next question we've got is from Steve Griffin, and Steve asks, what do I think about the inclusion of karate in the Olympics? What do I feel the impact will be in the longer term? What opportunities will emerge? Uh, what threats? Uh, my personal view on karate in the Olympics is I, I couldn't care less. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a complete indifference to me personally and mine, because as we've talked about, we may share the label karate, but that's it. You know, how they train and their objectives and what they're doing is a, is a million miles away from, from what I'm doing. So, you know, I've heard some people claim it'll be good for all of us, but I don't see how. I, I don't see the sport karate people claiming that pragmatic karate is, is good for them. You know, they're just, it's just different pursuits. I, I, I don't, I've never really been involved in the sport karate side of things, but I have for the, the, the judo. I've been around people who wanted to be judo Olympians who didn't have jobs because they were training full time. I've seen the sacrifices that they've made, physical and financial, in order to, for that one off chance of competing in one Olympic Games, maybe two, and then maybe with the even slimmer chance of getting a medal. So I, I, I assume it has to be the same in the karate. So for them, I'm really pleased for them. I, I think if you're putting in that level of work and effort, the, the chance to be able to get an Olympic gold will be the, the pinnacle of what you do. I'm, I'm really pleased for the sport karateka that they have that option. But for me personally, it makes no difference to, to me at all. In terms of the impact in the longer term, I, I don't think there'll be that great an impact. I understand that as, as karate people, it seems huge to us, but we've got to remember, we, we're karate people, we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to change what I'm doing just because karate's got in the Olympics, and, and, and for the general public, it's not going to alter their perception of karate, some people worry that it might, but what you've got to consider is that no one's going to watch the karate in the Olympics, apart from martial artists. For the average person, what they care about are the track and field events. That's pro primarily what they care about for the Olympics. So what will happen is, if someone from your given nation wins a medal in the karate, then you'll get a 30-second highlight, showing them all the flancy kicks and takedowns they did to win it. So at best, what's going to happen is, we're going to get a couple of minutes shown on TV once every four years. That, that's it. That is not going to have a massive impact on the way that the public perceives karate and what it is. So I don't think it'll have any threats to those who are practicing the, the practical karate. Uh, one possible opportunity is, because obviously if you look at the competition, there's some pretty cool looking stuff done within it. When you see the, you know, the beautiful kicks and the great takedowns, you see the, a lot of the cool throws in the modern versions of it as well. It, it looks quite impressive. So if you put that together in a highlight reel, and some young kid sees that, he might think, oh, that looks cool, I want to do that. So he might get him through the door, and then as a result, you know, he might do his, his competition karate days, then move on to the more traditional karate. So it may bring a, one or two extra people in. Um, it might put one or two off. So you might see a 40-something-year-old guy who looks at it and thinks, man, that looks cool, but I couldn't possibly get my leg that high to kick like that. So it might put one or two off. 
But again, I, I don't think it'll be anything meaningful in, in, in the longer term. It just won't. You know, movies will have the biggest influence like they've always had. And I think it's important that you know, we as traditional pragmatic karateka, if we keep throwing up our videos into YouTube and stuff, that will have a big, bigger impact than karate being in the Olympics. People search karate in YouTube and see some practical stuff in there alongside all the competitive stuff that'll probably have a bigger influence I think than than the Olympics so yeah I'm pleased for those involved with it I think it must be great news for them it's a complete indifference to me it will will not change the way I practice in one iota I I don't think it'll affect my ability to uh, either increase my uh, students coming through the door or decrease students coming through the door I think on net it'll have it'll have no impact whatsoever so the next question we get is from uh, Liam Wandy, and he said, after achieving black belt in karate, judo, and uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which, well done, Liam, that's, that's some achievement. He said, uh, I'm starting to see a huge number of parallels between the arts, from throws and submissions in kata to strikes and positional control strategies from karate into Jiu-Jitsu. I've noticed you've researched other arts, and I'm very curious, conceptually, uh, which similarities have you noticed? So I, I think that there, there are definite commonalities, I think, between all the arts. Uh, obviously, what separates them is uh, what they're training for. You know, so like modern judo tends to aim at outfighting another judoka. So of course, the training's done that way. Um, so that can change things, of course. And different arts emphasise different elements. So some are more striking based, some are more throwing based. But in a lot of the conceptual ideas, there there are definitely lots of commonalities. So, for example, with the uh, the throwing in karate, I obviously see parallels with the throwing in judo. Ju- judo takes them to a far higher level and um, has because that's their emphasis so there can be benefits in training in judo to enhance the karate throwing you know this commonalities like that um, when i look at the uh, trapping skills within karate i see parallels between the trapping in wing chun again wing chun takes it to a higher level because that's the art it, it, that's the what the art specializes in primarily is trapping skills but you notice the similarities there uh, because Although the, the objective can vary and the, the emphasis can vary, once you start talking about actual methods, there's an awful lot in common. So it's why I've always said I regard myself as a martial artist first and a karateka second. Because uh, I do train with regularly with Krav Maga guys, um, kickboxers, all kinds of different systems. You know, jiu-jitsu guys, are, are regular training partners who are jiu-jitsu guys, uh, kickboxers, Krav Maga practitioners. Um, and, and I can train just fine alongside them and we can train together. They don't use kata as a vehicle to record their drills and stuff and they don't have that solo form of practice. But in terms of actually what we're doing, it's very similar. So I, I again, I'll quote Gavin Mulholland again. G- Gavin said that styles are often not what we do, they're how we train what we do. And, and I think that that's the key thing. When you start, how do you strangle someone? Well, all strangles are pretty much going to be the same. How do you hit somebody? It's going to be the same. If you're truly objective-driven, if you're looking at self-defense, we'll come to very similar solutions because what works best works best. So um, I, I do think there is value in looking at, at the different arts, and, and there are um, a lot of commonalities at the level of, of, of principle uh, and method. And I think Liam's quite quite right to kind of point that out. You know, So, um, yeah, lots of commonalities between the various systems. In a related question, uh, Gareth Piper asks, uh, what throwing techniques, takedowns would you say uh, must knows for karateka? And how important would I say an understanding of break falling uh, techniques is for, uh, for karateka? So in terms of, like, throw, throwing's one of these things, right? So if you take uh, striking, I think pretty much everyone's going to do that the same way. So the, the optimum way 
for everyone to get power into their hook punch, it's, it's going to be the same. You know, the mechanics are the same for a 16-stone guy as they are for a 6-stone person. You know, regardless of what size you are, the, the mechanics of punching is largely the same. However, I think throwing depends a lot more on body type. So, for, as I've told this story at seminars, I once asked my uh, judo coach if he could take me through Uchimata, you know, the inner thigh throw. And he looked at me and said, why? You'll never throw anyone with legs like that because I've got relatively short legs, you see. And when I said, look, it's because, you know, so I can teach people it, he went, oh, fair enough, that's a good answer, and then took me through it once. But most of the time he had me doing throws that he thought suited my particular body type. In my own dojo, what we do is we teach them a variety of throws, both from within the kata and, you know, extra throws as well from the old texts, you know, we do ones of Funakoshi and Itaman and others show. So we do a variety of karate throws, and then when they hit the upper brown belts, we then start telling them that for gradings they have to show three throws. We don't define what they are. You know, so three throws with a ground fighting follow-up, or three throws with a strike and escape, or something like that. And the reason being is the student then chooses the throws that suits them best. So in terms of which throws do I think a must-knows, I, I think karate again need to know throws of each type. So it's good if they know some reaping throws, it's good if they know some hip throws, it's good if they know some shoulder throws, some hand throws, it's, it, it's good if they know some tripping, it's good if they know some leg pickups, these kind of things. Teach them a, a variety of throws so they've done a couple of each. And then from there they can go, right, for me and my body type and my personal preference, I know these. Uh, technically I understand them all but these are the ones that work for me as the individual. I also think that helps karate in the longer term as well because it's not enough just to teach the student uh, throws that would work well for them because if they go on to teach so for example if I like for me I, I'm uh, a, I would say below average height quite short legs and I've got above average strength I'm quite stocky so there's certain uh, throws that really suit me I like the throws that lift I like the throws that grab legs they work really well for me the reaping throws because I've got relatively short legs don't work so well for me now if you take Murray you know who you'll know from the books and DVDs and uh, Murray's uh, taller thinner than me he's got long legs the inner thigh throw for example is his favorite throw he catches someone with it every single training session so he wouldn't use the throws I would use and I wouldn't use the throws he would use but we can both teach each other sets of throws because as the students come up they will have different body types and preferences to both of us so I've used this analogy a lot at seminars that we need a collective knowledge pool that we all draw from and we learn all of the techniques but then what we do is we choose which ones work best for us as an individual so in terms of must knows the, the need to learn some of each and then they can decide which ones that they're, they're going to um, going to use individually and in terms of the the break falling i i think that is quite important if you're practicing throws I, I, it, when i was doing the judo course that was pretty much part of every warm-up you do a warm-up and then you do a lot of break falling as part of it because in judo you're spending a lot of your time doing throws in, in the karate of course throwing is not a primary method at the same degree so we won't be doing that much throwing therefore we won't be doing that much break falling either but but i do think it is important the way i tend to do it is i teach the break falling as part of the throw so you go okay here's the throw and here's the break fall for the throw um sometimes uh, I, th I think that we kind of lose sight of it and people just start doing gymnastics when they're doing their, the the break falling but i think it um it is important it reminds me of a story as well yeah we years ago we're probably talking 20 odd years ago now i think 
the I was teaching a club near a town where there's a, a large uh, factory, and the, that factory would have people who would come and go quite a lot on, for contract work. So we'd regularly get people from other styles of systems just coming to train with us while they were fulfilling the contract. We had this one such guy, who's a, a Kyokushin uh, second down, great guy. I really enjoyed training with him. He, he, he was he was good fun. But the first night he comes to the club and he watches us train, he goes, oh, he says, you guys do you know, a bit of throwing too. And I said, yeah, yeah, we do. I said, uh, how's your break falling? And he went, it's fantastic. He says, I break things every time I fall. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, that's pretty much how most karate could do, do break falling. Um, so you do need to make sure it, it's in there. For me, because I come from a Wado background, Wado uh, is effectively a synthesis of of traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and uh, karate too. So part of the two-person drills in, in Wado, there are quite a few throws and takedowns and stuff. So we learnt break furling pretty much early on. It was kind of standard. But I appreciate it's not for many. And if you are learning throws, then you need to learn break falling as, as part of those throws. But again, it, it, we won't be doing it to the same degree that um, uh, judoka were. Uh, as a little aside on that as well, is one, one of the things that I've seen in the competitive judo is that at a certain point they abandon the break falling to a degree because it makes the other guy's throw look better. So they still try and land safely, but not in the formal way they were originally taught um, in, in order to make sure that they don't land on the back with a nice slap that helps the other guy score points. You know, so it, it, it's an interesting one. And I think that brings us to the end of the general karate questions. <laughs> Martial Arts Fun Fact 197 Tai Chi works on the principle of moving so slowly that the enemy's innate reactions are not triggered. The slow motion strikes are known to leave the recipients totally bemused and hence incapacitated. So we had a few questions on the subject of cross-training. So Gary Hood, uh, he asked, What are your thoughts on cross-training? And by this I mean not just being focused on one art or style. And Cameron Pease asked, um, what are your opinions on cross-training in other styles? How do you feel about those who say their students should, shouldn't do so? So, and obviously, you know, there's a few different approaches to cross-training. So, I mean, it's certainly something I've done. Um, there's, you know, kickboxing, boxing, judo elements, various styles of karate, all these kind of things have found their way into to what we do. So I've trained in these other systems and then brought back the things that I feel are appropriate to my karate. So I've always regarded myself as being a karate kid and I've gone to study specialised uh, systems in order to look at training methods and, and drills and sometimes techniques and things that I can bring back within the karate to make my karate as efficient as it can be. So that's so. On that front, I am I am definitely very pro cross training. There's also, of course, that other approach where people train in uh, more than one discipline. So they're not training in a discipline to bring information back. They legitimately want to excel at both of those disciplines, uh, and I can see value in that too. You know, that if that's meeting your objectives, then that's definitely something I can see see value in. I think sometimes you've got to be careful that the two fuse. So, for example, if you said, "Oh, I do Thai boxing for my striking and judo for my grappling," well, you're learning two separate systems there, and a key part he's been able to link them together so uh, that's something that you, you also need to, to to work on it's not just enough to train in the two separate systems you need to practice bringing those systems together into a co uh, coherent whole as well so i you know, i think cross training is generally a good thing uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's something you need to do because uh, for a lot of people it will depend on the time that you've got uh, you may not have the time to you know, for family life and work and everything else. And if martial artists, uh, martial arts aren't your main thing, you may not have the time to wander off and cross train in 
50 different systems or even one different system. But but if you can do, that's a good thing. We also have the thing of, it depends how deep you want to go. So, you know, there's training opportunities outside of taking up an art formally now. I mean, I know recently a friend of mine organised a, uh, a course with Neil Adams, you know, a, a, a judo Olympian, uh, aimed specifically for karate guys who wanted to learn the fundamentals or a few basics of throwing. So you can do that to cross-train too. Go to seminars with systems that aren't your core system. See if you can pick up anything you useful uh, again all my teachers have recommended cross training not, not a single one of them has said you shouldn't do so uh, I, I, one of the things the, the downside of it is you can do this jack of all trades master of none thing so you sometimes get people who go oh no yeah I've trained in Thai boxing and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu I've wrestled I've done karate I've done Wing Chun and what they mean is they've done six months of all of them and, and generally therefore everything they're doing is of low quality uh, sometimes I think again you, you're better uh, excelling in one system or getting a good grounding in, in one system before you go off to explore other things because some of the fundamentals are transferable uh, fitness will be the ability to control your own body will be the ability to kind of um, have that right combative mindset will be as well so lots of different ways to approach it I think is how you how you approach it in terms of like people saying you shouldn't cross train I, I don't get why anyone would say that other than an attempt to control I can understand how you could say it to somebody if they're just getting the grips with a let's say they're taking up uh, the studying Shotokan karate so they've, they've started okay I want to do Shotokan and at the same time they've decided oh I also want to cross train in Taekwondo right um, so they're studying both systems well th there's enough similarity there between those two systems for it to cause confusion so I can understand how one of the instructors might say look you're looking like a halfway house between the two at the minute and I think you'd maybe be better focusing on one so that is a suggestion I think could be fine you know get your downgrade in Taekwondo then look at the Shotokan you know and start afresh that, that I can see why some people might advise that but just saying no you shouldn't train with anyone else is normally it's a control thing it's not what's in the best interest of the student it's what's in the best interest financial interest at least in the short term of the instructor as my teacher peter considine always said he goes as soon as you try and put walls up around people the first thing they want to do is climb those walls so if you want a good following in the longer term i think it's quite smart to acknowledge that what you need to do is serve your students best and if what serves your students best is for them to cross train then you should be encouraging them to um, to do so so yeah there's some you know general thoughts on cross training uh, and riz uh, tebley had a slightly more um uh, specific question so riz asked he goes what's the best approach to integrate skills and disciplines from two different martial arts into the analysis of kata so this is something we often get as well you know so so let's take a, a simple example let's say you've got a karateka who has never done a throw in his life so he's gone to a a karate club that uh, doesn't teach throwing at all but they do teach the kata now what happens is he'll come to certain movements that uh, he won't recognize as being th uh, being a throw he'll see that okay that looks like a gidambarai in front of me or a lower block in front of me and an outer block behind me so it must be two simultaneous blocks the two attacks at exactly the same time at 180 degrees we, we get all these real weird ways of, of, of looking at certain movements because they don't recognize the throw. Or um, you'll see like trapping skills in kata and people go, oh, your hand's in this position to guard your forehead or to guard your solar plexus. Well, if anyone understands trapping, they'll go, no, you're trapping there. It's like, like a classic example in Pinan Godan where you've got the, bit, the punch where you're not looking. You know, so the, the the bit where you kind of turn your head and shoot your arm upwards. Well, you show that to a thrower, they got to set up for a one arm shoulder throw. You're turning your head, you're lifting your arm up, you're breaking the balance. It's a one arm shoulder throw. But 
if you show that to a karateka who doesn't understand throwing, he goes, oh, it looks a bit like a punch where you're not looking. So it gets misinterpreted. Now, if you belong to a school that covers throwing and locking, that won't happen. But if you belong to a school that teaches kata without applications, you may not have the education to see what's within the kata. So therefore, you decide, oh, look, we don't do any throwing. I'll go to judo or jiu-jitsu. As soon as you do this, you go, oh, that moves in this kata, and that moves here, and that moves there. So um give examples. Um, Peter Constantine, as you know, one of my teachers, went to Hong Kong, studied Wing Chun because he felt that uh, his karate didn't have those close-range control skills that he felt he needed for door work. And if you, you can hear Peter talk about this in the podcast, you know, when I interviewed Peter in the podcast, he then later on looks at his kata again and goes, oh, it was in the cutter but he just didn't see that it was there in the first instance and then, and then you know uh, jeff thompson in the forward to my karate's grappling methods book he says the same thing that you know he does his door work and thinks i need to learn to throw and grapple he goes to judo and then realizes oh that was in the cutter and this is in the cutter so i understand that sometimes going outside the art gives you a fresh perspective and i've certainly done that I've, I've been to train with other systems and styles and they've seen something i've gone man that's a great way to drill it or yeah i see that now you know you, you gain these extra the insights so I, I think the, the key thing is um, if you're studying other art is look for the commonalities look for the commonalities of motion that you can relate back to your cat uh, if you're studying in a more casual way so let's say you, you know looking at a judo book and you're looking at throws look at the how the person executing the throw look at his position and in your mind kind of tip x or photoshop out the guy on the receiving end and look at the position and say does that remind me of anything i see in my kata because once you start to speak the language of throws and traps and trokes and strangles you see them littered throughout the kata and you and instantly then all that bizarre notions of weird ways of blocking just disappear too so um yeah just Look for the commonality would be my my answer to that one. Uh, so, so yeah, so there the brief amount of questions we got on uh, cross training. Martial arts fun fact number forty two: the idea that karate was developed by unarmed peasants to be used against their katana wielding samurai overlords is largely a result of the exploits of a single karateka who was nicknamed Stumpy McSevered Limbs. <laughs> So we now have some questions around pressure points. Uh, the first one is from Marcus Williams. It uh, came in via Facebook. He said, uh, that uh, have I ever thought that the reason for kata techniques are uh, pressure points? Uh, um, no. Um, I, I don't believe that the kata are pressure point drills. Now, and I, I know that's uh, a, a popular view in, in some quarters, but I, I don't think there's any historical evidence for that. And it, I think it overplays the importance of pressure points as well. So, because obviously knowing where to hit is important, but all the other combative elements are, I would argue, more important. The ability to control limbs, the ability to lock, to choke, uh, to grip, uh, all these kind of things, to tactically position yourself, to uh, extend body weight, to throw. These are things that the cutter include too. Now, the reality of it as well is that hitting a target specifically, particularly at a specific angle as well, in a real fight is incredibly difficult because they're just massively chaotic. So it wouldn't make sense for the, the cutter to be all about pressure points because 
it's hard to hit accurately. It, it, it just is. So when people go, you know, hit this point here, you know, on this this point, it's about a centimetre across, and you need to hit it at this, like, say, a 45-degree angle, it's just almost impossible to pull that off in reality. So, if, for example, if you say, you know, hit this point at a 45-degree angle, right, which seems fine when the guy's standing still in front of you, but in reality, people move. So if the guy tilts his head a little bit, let's say he tilts his head 20 degrees, Right, it's it's now going to be a sixty-five degree angle or a twenty-five degree angle that my technique has to come in. Okay, depending on which way his head's moved. So there's just too many variables, and it's too difficult to hit these uh, specific uh, places. I also think uh, when people talk about pressure points as well, they often think of the chi-based pressure points. You know, triple warmer seventeen, stomach nine, stomach five, these kind of things. Where we're talking about like acupuncture type terminology. Uh, one thing that's important to, to to accept to understand on that is that a lot of the pressure point charts that we have today, when Westerners have translated them and put them out in books and that kind of stuff, they've overlaid the acupuncture terminology because that's what's popular now. If you actually look at the original charts, no one's saying stomach five, stomach nine. They're just basically saying hit this point here. It's simple, you know, whack here diagrams. That, that's, that's all we've got. Uh, so I, I think that um, we need to be careful about overcomplicating things. So, so particularly with the chi-based one. So let's take, you know, you hit the jaw. So if I remember correctly, that's um, at, at stomach five, right? Um, so you hit, hit the stomach five point, and uh, this is allegedly leads to a knockout. Well, in Western science, I can explain why that works. I can say you're hitting the jaw. You're not hitting any point. You're hitting the jaw. That sends shockwaves through the jaw into the inner ear, which affects balance. It also causes the head to talk. It causes the brain to smash against the side of the skull this will lead to unconsciousness and people pass out and we see this happening in boxing matches mma bouts you know every time someone gets clocked on the jaw there's a good chance they're going to pass out now if you say no it let's not call it the jaw let's call it stomach five it's just needlessly complicated because i then have to ask well what is that stomach five and you go well it's on a meridian i go well what's a meridian it's where chi flows uh, show me chi well i can't it's never been scientifically demonstrated to exist we've no chi meters we can't we can't measure it, but you've just got to trust me that it does. So if I do go, okay, I trust you. I trust you that this chi exists. Okay, if I'll give you that. How does hitting stomach five and disrupting the flow of this magic energy to my stomach cause a knockout? I've never seen any of the chi-based guys explain that, okay? Uh, the other thing is, well, okay, why does hitting stomach five cause a knockout um, by disrupting the flow of chi to the stomach, but hitting other points along the stomach meridian don't cause a knockout? So you've then got, well, you've got to explain the existence of meridians, which can't be demonstrated. You've got chi, which can't be demonstrated. I, I accept chi as an internal feeling. You know, when people talk about, it can sometimes be a nice coverall term for what we're feeling internally. But as a, as a real force in the way that gravity is a force and electricity and magnetism and things like that, uh, chi can't be shown to exist. Right, it, it, when we cut bodies open, we find nerves and 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 vessels and bones. We don't find meridians; that they're not, they're not there. So I, I think the chi-based terminology is something we need to get away from. It, it wasn't there originally; it's been overlaid on, and it adds unnecessary confusion because every single one of the chi-based points that are said to cause a knockout. Western science can explain exactly where, why they cause a knockout without having to resort to uh, chi and meridians and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I am 
sceptical about the practical applications of pressure points or weak areas generally because they're hard to hit. I think it's more important that you learn how to hit, you learn how to hit hard, and then if your technique's off by an inch or two or not quite at the right angle, well, so what? It's going to do the damage anyway. I don't see the cutter as pressure point drills. I've heard, I've heard pressure points referred to as uh, Lawrence Kane calls it uh, extra credit. So, which is that's a nice way of looking at it. I've also heard other people refer to it as like the poison on the tip of your arrow. And I think that works well as well. So we're saying, look, everything else needs to be in place. And if by extreme skill and good fortune, I can happen to land this point at this, this place, I'll get a greater, greater effect than, than I would have done if I'd been a few inches off it. But I also think that the chi-based stuff we're better off getting rid of. I think we're better off dropping that. Uh, so the next one is, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name, so I, I, I apologise already for my severe mispronunciation of this. But I think it's Mudit Sinivastava. So I hope I've pronounced that properly. So he asks, uh, what are my thoughts on no-touch knockouts? And he says that, you know, he's a, he's a believer in chi, but he doesn't believe in uh, no-touch knockouts. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the no-touch knockouts. Every time they have been tested against a non-believer, not a student or somebody who wants to believe, but against someone who is sceptical, uh, they don't work. You know, it, it just never works. Uh, again, we're trying to use a f- magic force that has never been identified by science, uh, that, that, that never stands to Im- uh, up to empirical testing. Uh, so, and again, I think such things are really damaging to the martial arts. I, I, it's almost like buying into the kung fu movie side of it. You know, so I get in entertainment. We want magic forces and mystical powers and superhero-esque style abilities. But we need to accept that that's not reality. It's not reality. It's like a friend of mine says, he goes, he wishes it was true. He'd like nothing more for it to be, to be, to be real, to be able to cultivate this force and knock a guy over, to, to be like, like a Jedi and send people flying with a flick of your wrist, you know? But it's just, it doesn't, it's not the world we live in. It doesn't really exist. And, and I think such things can be damaging to the reputation of the martial arts. So we, we need rid of it. Um, it, it needs to go. Uh, same uh, question from uh, from Moody. Uh, another question he asks: uh, Why is Kyusho never touched upon in almost all dojos? So I think it depends upon what you mean by Kyusho. So if you're talking about the chi based triple warmer seventeen, stomach nine, stomach five, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, targeting, it's because in some dojos they just don't subscribe to that way of viewing things. So mine doesn't. We 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 never talk about that. Well, aside from educating students that other people do this and this is why we don't, but we we never really talk about it. But we do talk about weak areas a lot. But that that's not done separately. I don't sit the class down and say, okay, let's get a, like a chart out and let's go through all the various uh, weak points of the anatomy. When we're doing our drills, we're always looking to strike those places when we're doing our, our bunkai drills. And you know, this is forearm will drop into the base of the skull here. We'll hit the floating moves with this shot. This one will hit the solar plexus. We deliver this strike to the jawline. You know, we 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 work it in, but it's an integrated part. It's not separate. Now, for some dojos, of course, if they're not self-defense focused, uh, they won't teach any form of weak points because what they care about is scoring zones, especially if you're talking about points. So, for example, if you were an MMA competitor or a, a full contact fighter, then you will need to know weak areas. You know, you'll need to know, you know, this is a liver shot and this will drop people and this is the sweet spot on the jaw, as boxers call it, because this will knock people out. But you don't need to know all that stuff if you're talking about uh, points where they just basically say, okay, if you hit this area, the point will 
be counted and will score and if it this area it won't score so in that case they're not teaching weak areas they're teaching scoring areas so therefore it's not their objective but so there's a few reasons i think why it may not be taught but there's also the acknowledgement that it can be taught but in in different ways i think uh, the next question's a related one from uh, Michael Sirico. He says, do I ever use a traditional Chinese medicine, for example, like the five element theory for Kyusho or Tuate to explain my bunkai? Well, as I've just mentioned, no, no, I don't. Um, for those who don't know, the five element theory uh, relates, it uh, gives each of the uh, meridians has a, an element associated with it. So not a periodic table style element, not like thorium or magnesium or something like that. An element is in like fire or water or metal, something like that. Okay, there's five of them. Uh, and then the idea is that if you hit in certain uh, certain order, then you can get a greater effect. So there's a destructive cycle and a creative cycle. So if we talk about the destructive one, um, so for example, if I was to hit a uh, a wood point followed by an earth point, that would have a greater effect because wood uh, trees grow through the earth. Wood destroys earth, that would make it weaker. Uh, earth soaks up water, uh, um, uh, water puts out fire, and fire uh, melts metal, and metal cuts wood, if I remember correctly. So the idea is that if you hit in along those orders, that you'll get a greater effect. Now, now again, for me, that's reliant on that one, that we can demonstrate m that meridians exist, and we can't. Uh, the chi exists, and there's no evidence that it does. And that this chi comes in a variety of flavours as well, which, again, there's, there's no evidence for it. I even know some people who are really into pressure points who have just completely dropped the, that side of things, the traditional Chinese medicine uh, theories for it, and have uh, adopted a, well, just whack him at this point, you know, whack him in this zone even, you know, uh, and you'll get a far greater result. And, and I, I lean towards that. I think the more we can demystify things, the better. And I've, I've never, uh, for, for example, I'll I, I, I show this point. I, I did once um, see a guy who, uh, was doing, uh, trying to explain these five elements theory. And then what he did, it was effectively a center lock, you know, for those that know that. So he's, he's grabbing the hand between the thumb and the index finger and the little finger side. And then we, he's hooking on the, on the inside of the elbow. So what he's saying, well, you know, I've touched a, I can't remember what it was, but let's say I've touched a metal point here, and the next thing I do is I touch a wood point on the other side of the hand, so metal cuts wood, and then over here I touch an earth point, and when I touch all three of these points together, the chi crashes together in the middle of his forearm, it causes him pain, and it kicks his knees out. But And I'm looking at this, and I think, it's a center lock. You know, all you've done is you put on a lock, which has twisted the bones together, and that's why you feel the pain, because that's where the bones are crossing, that's where they're being compressed. Uh, and the reason he's dropping down to his knees is because in order to un twist those bones he needs to get his shoulder into play which means he needs to straighten his elbow and the only way he can do that from the way that he's gripped is to drop his his legs down so we can explain that through physiology now it's because i asked the question i said look if i just grab it in another way not putting on a center lock i grab either side of the hand and touch here why isn't his knees kicking out because i'm grabbing the exact same points and i didn't get a satisfactory answer so i, I i'm not dismissing this stuff out of hand it is stuff i have looked at you know i'm open-minded enough to, to give everything a go especially if it's going to increase my uh effectiveness and at various points i've, I've been exposed to a lot of the key players in this field uh and it didn't leave me thinking I needed it for my martial arts. I thought, okay, I get it, and I get that you like it. I, I don't think it adds any value. I think it adds needless complexity, and I, I think there's better ways to explain what's going on that is easier for students to grasp that doesn't 
require any esoteric knowledge. And I understand that people might like that. You know, it might be, it, it, it's, there's something appealing about making fighting easy. You know, making fight, fighting esoteric. You just need to know the secrets and it's easy. But the reality is that's not the way it works. You need to be physically fit. You need to be combatively conditioned. And, and you need to know, um, you know, what you're doing. You need to be able to hit hard. You need to be able to grip right. And no amount of pressure point knowledge can substitute for that. Uh, so, yeah, not for me. I, I appreciate that others may like it. And I hope no one takes offence at what I'm saying. And if, if you've tried it and it works for you, then more power to you. Um, but as I respect your right to believe it, I hope you'll respect my right to disbelieve it and, and not being for me and mine. So the next question we've got is uh, Adam Mills. Uh, and Adam says, uh, The Bibishi contains many examples of practical techniques that can be applied in self-defense. However, it also illustrates a number of Kyushu and Dimmak techniques, which are generally accepted to be not that pragmatic. So personally, I've found this mix of pragmatism and a complete lack thereof to be quite intriguing. And he asks, what's my take on this? Uh, and, and I would agree. And I think it's a good observation. Uh, I think part of the problem with the Bibishi uh, is its importance has been oversold. So Choji Miyagi referred to it as the Bible of karate, So and some people accept that to be so. But I, I don't think we can regard the Babishi as being the definitive text on karate. So, so when we come to the self-defense side of it, the, the drawings of show techniques, there's definitely some very good stuff in there. And... Uh, but but again, you have to acknowledge that's vague too. So it tends to be uh, drawings, drawings that aren't always clear about what's going on. Uh, and then they're often in some form of poetry. So it's things like uh, something, 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 this man will win. Something, 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 this man will lose. So in the translations, and there's a lot, you know, there's George Alexander's translation and Pat McCarthy's translations, and these are great books and you should get them. Uh, but in the translation, because they often add extra details, you know, their interpretation of what's going on. But in the Babishi itself, it's simply two lines of poetry and a diagram. So the, the, they are quite vague and they are open to interpretation. So one that jumps to mind is there's a technique in there called uh, Two Dragons Play in the Water. And uh, in most of the translations, they see that as a as an arm lock, um, and I don't. I see it as a wedge. I see it as a flinch. Um, so when when I teach it, that's what I, I teach it as. I believe that's what the poem shows, and I think that's what the diagram best illustrates. So there's different interpretations on 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 what they are, but there's no doubt that you can interpret them pragmatically. So we have to be careful on on that front. But there's definitely some good practical stuff in there. There de- 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 definitely is. Uh, and then, then you have the dimmak stuff as well. So this idea that if I hit a guy on a certain pressure point at a certain time of day, he will die a set number of hours, minutes, weeks afterwards. And that's obviously utter nonsense. Uh, uh, my belief on this as to where this myth uh, originates is two guys getting into a duel. One of them dies a few days after, which sadly happens in combative sports nowadays you know boxing mma has had that happen so people get get injured during the fight and they don't die immediately they die afterwards from their injuries so i think some unscrupulous kung fu master who may have been the winner or he may have been the loser but nevertheless his uh, opponent died after the event and he said oh yes um that was my secret five point exploding heart technique and if you train with me for 30 years and give me loads of money, uh, I may show you this secret exploding heart five-point death technique. Um, and of course, probably what happened was he just whacked a guy in a spleen and he died of a ruptured spleen a few days later. But he sees a chance to uh, cash in on it. 
And then after a certain amount of time, students go, well, hang on a minute, you said you were going to teach me this secret magic technique. So, oh yeah, okay, here it is. Here's the secret chart. Now, of course, nobody tests it. Nobody walks up to the students in the dojo or the trainer partners and said, I think this technique's going to kill you. Can I give it a go? You know, because everyone, no, no, you can't do it. You're not going to test it. So it's never challenged and it just continues and the myth gets propagated. So, um, and of course we find that stuff in the babishi. So we can just reject that out of hand. You know, there's, there's also stuff in the babishi, you know, like herbal medicines and stuff. And I can understand that back in the day, if you got injured, you, you would need to know how to patch yourself up. But in these day and age, if I get stabbed, I'm not going to start looking through the bushes for the right herbs. I'm going to go to the nearest emergency department. I'm going to ring 999 or 911 or whatever the emergency services number in that, in that part of the world. We don't need that anymore. So um, the Babishi is a hugely important historic text. It's no doubt it was hugely influential on, on the, the thinking of the masters. It's very, very important. You can argue it's the most influential text within karate, you know, certainly treasured by them all. Very, very important. It does have some very practical stuff in it. It's also got some vague stuff. It's got some outdated stuff. And it's got some stuff that we know to be utter nonsense too. So we, we need to read it with uh, with modern eyes and, and not treat it like a sacred text, you know, that it's infallible because it, it most definitely is not infallible. So, uh, yeah, that's all the pressure point questions. I say, you know, I, I openly admit that I'm a skeptic um, in the best sense of the word. I've, I've, I've looked at this stuff I, I don't buy it i i accept chi from a health point of view where people say oh i feel this and i can feel this moving around inside me and if i breathe this way i feel it's good for my chi and i think what they're doing there is they're using the word chi to describe an internal feeling that you can't quite communicate in other ways i can accept chi as a as a coverall term but as a real force that exists in the real world i don't buy it and when it comes to manipulating the chi of your enemy, I think we should, we're better off getting rid of that terminology. We're getting, getting rid of the traditional Chinese medicine theories that go with it. My experience has been that they, it adds little uh, other than confusion. And I think we're better off um, uh, rejecting it. And of course, you are totally free to disagree. But this is the Ian Abernethy podcast. So therefore, um, you get Ian Abernethy's views. Okay, so that's the pressure point questions concluded. Martial arts fun fact number 42. The idea that karate was developed by unarmed... Oh, not that one. So we now have some miscellaneous questions, and these are the ones that I could probably have fit into the other categories, but I I, I didn't feel they were a perfect fit, so I've uh, uh, kept them for the miscellaneous section. Uh, so the first one we've got is uh, Ken Dinsdale. This came in via uh, Facebook. He said he's never heard me mention Aikido in my podcasts, and he wants to know if I've ever studied it. And if so, what do I consider to be its strengths and weaknesses? Now, like all systems, I think it's who's teaching it and how is it taught. So I do know Aikido practitioners who make good use of their Aikido and can do it in an effective way. Uh, but I have to say those guys normally study other systems too. Uh, my critique of Aikido as a standalone system would be uh, because they don't spend a lot of time hitting pads and striking, they can't strike particularly well. So therefore, they're defending against bad strikes and that allows things to work against really poor strikes that wouldn't work against committed strikes. 
So I, if I'm honest, I do see a little bit of that. That's not to say Aikido can't be effective because I've seen guys do it and do it well. Um, but I, again, it's been my observation that in most cases, those are people who have, have studied other systems too. And then, you know, they know how to hit. They know what a real strike should look like. They know what uh, the rough and tumble of real conflict is like. Uh, and therefore they tend to make their Aikido fit that. Um, where there's, there's no doubt that there are some Aikido where they get this own, their own insulated little world where it's, um, Aikido against Aikido with people attacking in a certain way so the Aikido techniques can work in a certain way. But it's just like any other art, you know. There's good and bad karate. So I'll, I'll, I would rather study good practical Aikido than bad impractical karate, even though I'm a karateka. And again, I'm not the ideal person to talk about it because I've never really studied it. Uh, but as an independent observer, if we can say that, um, that I, I have seen some uh, good Aikido, but the Aikido that I've seen that's normally good normally comes from people who've studied other systems as well. That isolated Aikido, I, I tend to find that things uh, go unnoticed because they don't really uh, notice how badly they're striking and therefore things seem to work just fine. And then of course when you come across someone who can strike effectively and viciously and explosively, it doesn't really hold up. So, um, yeah, so that, that's really all I can say on uh, the subject of Aikido. And uh, Andrew Kennedy, this came in by email, he asks, uh, if for whatever reason, if I could no longer train in karate, what other martial art would I choose to study, and why would I choose that style? Now, the thing is, if I could no longer study it, I think the only reason I'd stop would be injury. Uh, and that would rule out most other forms of martial arts I would enjoy doing too. So if someone, you know, you've badly hurt your shoulder or something, you, you can, it's painful to even move, you know, you, you can't do a karate anymore, then I wouldn't be able to do kickboxing or judo or jujitsu or uh, any form of kung fu. So they'd all be ruled out really. Because I, I like arts that are traditional, as I've mentioned before, I like feeling part of a tradition. From that kind of, you know, the forgotten history to the unforeseen future, I, I like being uh, linking that chain. So I like traditional systems now, for no other other reason than it appeals to something in me. Uh, I like arts that are open-minded, uh, pragmatic, that are open to change too. Um, so not that steadfast, stuck, dogmatic tradition. Uh, and I like martial arts that empirically test, you know, so do things live and, you know, hit pads and all that kind of stuff. So any system that would do those things would appeal. So I could jujitsu, kung fu, all those kind of things would, would appeal to me as, as well, so long as it was, was doing those things. Um, so probably that, you know, if someone said, okay, karate has been made illegal, you can't do that. I'd probably be looking for a system of Japanese jujitsu that included kicking, punching, striking, locking, uh, or, or a system of kung fu that did the similar thing it would have to be traditional it would have to have an established lineage it would have to include life practice it would have to be open-minded and not dogmatic um so yeah pro probably some form of kung fu or jujitsu uh, but again it's just like that you see it's like you know there's some forms of kung fu i would never go anywhere near and there's other forms i would love to practice and same with jujitsu there's form some forms of jujitsu i would not have any interest in it. and there's, there's other ones that i would really enjoy so uh, again it's again not really the art i guess it's, it's down to how it's practiced but yeah kung fu or jujitsu is the short answer uh with many caveats uh, next one we've got is for Juha uh, Kurakiri, uh, Kukakari, Kukakari, 
<laughs> Juha. I'm I'm quite sure I've got your first name right. I'm guessing that's Finnish. Um, so I, I apologise for the butchering of your your surname there. But he asks that uh, Bugai Jitsu, my my book, has been out of stock for a while now. Uh, will there be any changes to that? Uh, so for those that, those that uh, don't know, Bunkai Jitsu was my book written in 2002. So, uh, you know, for, um, what, what is that now? 15, 16 years ago? Uh, and it's been out of stock for a while. Uh, will there be any changes? So uh, it's out of print at the moment. I, I only have one copy myself. Uh, and the reason it's out of print, uh, the demand for it's definitely there. You know, I, I get emails about it regularly and um, I, I know that if I was to reprint it, it would sell okay. But but I'd rather use the funds uh, for new projects rather than to uh, keep all projects alive. You know, so uh, at the moment, there won't be any change because I've no plans to reprint the book. The good news is that means there's more funds available for the newer project. Uh, and at some point, uh, I have it, it's kind of semi done. Uh, I have a new book, which is like the Bunkai Jitsu book, is designed to be like a, a handbook for kata, how kata and bunkai are supposed to work. It's not a rewriting of bunkai jitsu because it's, it's done entirely from scratch. So in the 15 years since I published that book, I've obviously done a lot of teaching, I've done a lot of traveling, and what I found is that there are some ways of putting things across that resonate well with people, and there are some ways of putting things across that don't resonate so well. So it, it, all the stuff in the Bunkai Jitsu book still applies, but I would word it differently and present it differently, because I, I find that there's better ways to communicate those points, really. So, um, so the bad news is that book probably won't be in print again. It's still available as Kindle book. You can get an ebook version of it. Uh, and there, at some point, will be another new book uh, along the same lines, which hopefully people will find uh, more enjoyable and more digestible. And also, over the last 15 years, I think I've improved as a writer too. So, so I think it would be more, more readable uh, as well. So, yeah. So, yeah. Next one from uh, John Reed. He says, uh, what's your favorite music to train to, if any? So I do like training to music. Uh, I'll lift weights to music. I do my cardiovascular stuff to music. I'll do key on to music, um, stretch to music, all kinds of stuff. The one thing I don't do to music is kata. Never do kata to music because the kata have their own distinct rhythm. And I know that sometimes the rhythm of the music gets inside my head and that will change the rhythm of the kata. So I try and avoid doing uh, kata to music. But I do like training to music. Personally for me, you know, I grew up in 70s, born in the early 1970s, a child of the 70s and 80s. So for me, it's punk rock. You know, that's that's what I grew up on, uh, punk. Uh, still haven't grown out of that. You know, I'm approaching 50 now and my teenage angst is still thoroughly unresolved. I, I still enjoy uh, punk music as, as, as much as I ever did. And for those who don't know that music, it was always the straight edge stuff that appealed to me. The rebellion against the rebellion. So while, you know, there's that uh, rock and roll, sex, drugs and rock and roll style music, you had the straight edge punk stuff that was, you know, no, nope, don't do that. You know, think positively, don't do drugs, don't drink, don't smoke, you know, be disciplined, be focused, better yourself. That was the, the message of the music. It was the rebellion against the rebellion, you know, uh, and, and that really appealed to me. You know, this uh, fast, aggressive music made by angry young men, four angry young men <laughs> uh, with a positive message. So it just really appealed and, and still does, you know, so I, I never kind of grew out of it. So. Um, so that's my favourite music to train to. That's generally what I train to when I'm uh, when I'm training. I, I, that kind of stuff. In my dojo, we don't put it on because I realise my taste in music is not to everyone else's tastes. 
uh, when I train with some of my teachers, like uh, you know, we have our Thursday morning training sessions. We put music on then, but that's obviously that's dance music stuff, and, and I, I can't I can't stand it. I hate that kind of music. It just does nothing for me at all. It just strikes me as soulless. So it, it and my brain just zones it out. It may as well not be on. I don't notice it's there. So um, so I do train to music, but punk would be my my thing, and. Um, uh, who is the he asks also asks who's the rock band music you use uh, on the intro to the podcast uh, that's free copyright free uses you like music that that's what that is so at various points or places on the internet some kind souls have written and produced music for people to use in podcasts and videos and you know it's copyright free so i don't use any specific band nor would i because you know that's their music they've produced it it's right that they get reimbursed for it uh, but there are some kind souls who realize that it's nice to have music on podcasts and things so they produce this music to be used on that purpose so it's a mix i just find bits of copyright free music that i like and then i use that in the uh, the podcast so the stuff you've heard through uh, through this podcast will be um, copyright free uh, music uh, john also asked he said if i could train with anybody dead or alive from any style who would it be and why uh, that would be anko itosu and i'd like to train with him before he had the idea of uh, popularizing karate through the okinawan school system i'd just like to get a glimpse of that old school karate before the change that made it into the, the modern karate ideally i'd like to see the early days of that too and compare that to to where we are now but yeah that's who it would be itosu that would be the guy i'd love to train with john also asks he says who in your opinion has been the most influential martial artist in the history of martial arts and who has been the most influential to me and why in the most influential martial artist in history i would suggest there are two front runners for that the first one would be Kano, the founder of judo. Uh, Kano was the guy who, among all else, had the biggest influence on the way all martial arts are practiced. He popularized the Do idea, the idea of doing martial arts for character development and physical fitness. Uh, the training uniform that most traditional martial artists wear, the Gi, it comes from Kano. The ranking system of the, the Q grades, the colored sashes or belts, uh, the Dan grade system, all of this is Kano's doing. So he's hugely influential on the way that all martial arts are practiced today. Uh, I guess the other guy would have to be Bruce Lee because he, you know, he kind of pushed through and uh, made martial arts part of the pop culture, if you like. He made it part of, made everyone aware of it. You know, so I, I think you'd be hard pressed to to separate those two. I think I think those two guys have arguably done more for the popularity of martial arts and had more influence on the way they've been practiced than than anybody else. So Carno uh, or Bruce Lee, I think, for history, and I wouldn't like to say which. And in my own training, obviously that would be my teachers. So you've got uh, Doug James, 8th Dan, who was my first teacher, uh, instilled the importance of a uh, good level of technique in me. His training sessions were always physically demanding. We would use, we still do it to the day, sessions that make you want to throw up. We use the, the, the nickname, you know, the, you know, that was a Doug session. You know, really hard, austere training, uh, demands high level of technique. Um, but you know he was encouraging he, he liked us to train with other people he liked us to get um, our, our other opinions he liked us to make it our own um, so so Doug's a huge influence because you know I started with him if I trained with somebody else I'm, he'd laid the foundation for everything that came after um, and of course Doug introduced me to Jeff Thompson who really uh, laid on the reality based side of things 
uh, Doug and Jeff introduced me to Peter Constantine, who's my main teacher these days. Peter influenced me on his power generation, the transitions, the way of moving, and again, a, a lot to do with the reality-based side of things. Uh, Peter introduced me to Brian Seabright, again, who's also being a big influence uh, on the way that we train on the pods and our uh, fighting side of things. Also, you know, uh, the judo side of it, you know, uh, with Mike Liptrot, I trained in, in judo under Mike, and Mike has been an influence on the grappling and the throwing side of things, and also just the general teaching way of doing things as well, because Mike's just he's a great coach, and there's lots about the way that he conducts himself, and uh, that I, I admired and tried to bring back into my own teaching as well, so... So, yeah, so Doug, Peter, Jeff, Brian, and Mike are probably the most uh, influential uh, ones for, for me uh, personally. Uh, another miscellaneous question is from Tim Webb. He said, uh, what do I believe you'd need to develop your own martial system? And what do I believe is necessary for that system to qualify as a system? Uh, that's an interesting one, actually. That's a good point. I, I think that might be one that would be worth exploring in a podcast fully. Because there's, there's two sides to that, right? We've got the traditional systems, and some people believe that they were almost handed down by these demigods of old, and us mere mortals today couldn't hope to create systems anywhere near the level that they have done. Which is obviously entirely untrue. They were men, we're men, we can create systems, and they can create systems. Um, I think the thing that would determine whether it's valid or not, of course, is, is why have you created that system? So some people will do it for ego or financial value. So, that, you know, they're trained in a system for a couple of years, s- suddenly decide that they're now going to call themselves, you know, grandmaster such and such, promote themselves to 15th Dan, and then off they go heading their own system. And that's obviously not good. You know, it's just done to placate their own ego or maybe for finances. But for someone who's got, you know, trained a lot and has developed a high level of skill and is bringing together disparate uh, influences from a variety of sources, I could understand how they would develop something that would become a system and would be taught as such. And I think the ultimately, the only thing you need to qualify for that in, in, the, in the longer term is, well, does it survive the test of time? You know, good systems like judo, karate, you know, Tang Soo Do, various styles of Kung Fu, Wing Chun, Judo, all this kind of stuff, various styles of Jiu Jitsu, uh, they uh, have become codified as systems over time because a lot of people have gone, yeah, that, that is giving us something that we want. Some guy who starts his own system to placate his own ego probably won't last that long because it won't develop anything, you know, a meaningful following because it won't develop meaningful students that won't have any level of real ability so it'll probably die out pretty quick but that's probably one that would be fun to return to in its own podcast um so i i, I think you know in answer to the questions what do I, what do i believe you need to develop your own martial system is a lot of experience and something useful to say no one should be doing that after five or six years of training a guy who's trained for 30 40 50 years you know might at that point have something interesting to say and might want to bring them all together and, and in terms of what qualifies it as a system there's no universal body that checks these things so i would suggest is it functional is it achieving achieving the objectives to which it claims to to set out you know is it effective is it winning trophies is it doing what it's supposed to do is it improving your health and then time you know, because if it's doing something well, it'll probably develop a following and it'll spread. You know, th- th- there's a reason why there's lots of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo and Karate and Tang Soo Do practitioners, uh, Wing Chun practitioners. There's a reason these systems have survived. It's because they're, they're, they're good at what they do uh, and, and therefore develop a, develop a following. 
And uh, a final miscellaneous question from Andrew Kennedy. Uh, he said that he's got a, a girl to be due. Uh, a girl's going to be born on the 14th of April next year. Uh, so congratulations, Andrew. And he says, do I have any particular techniques that I feel might be most efficient in fighting off potential future boyfriends? So every father thinks this thought, right? So obviously, as you know, Evelyn, my daughter, was born recently. And obviously, a lot of people have asked me that same question. And I think there's something fun about being a martial arts dad, right? Because when someone comes around and, you know, talk to your daughters, you are a gorilla in the mist. You know what I mean? That's that's the thing. If you're a big, fit, competent guy, future boyfriends better think twice about how they're going to treat you, you know, your little girl. Because, you know, it may go very wrong for them if they if they, if they don't treat them well, you know. Um, I also had, there was a fridge magnet I was once given, which I liked, where it said, uh, someday my prince will come, but daddy will always be king. <laughs> so I think that's well worth remembering as well. So no official, no official techniques, but there's definitely something about being um, a martial presence. You know, and I've joked that, you know, I've said, you know, I was asked this recently, you know, about Evelyn and future um future boyfriends and I said yeah well I'll have to fight me for Andy marriage you know if, if someone can 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 defeat me in unarmed combat then they're probably more able to take care of her than I am so 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 that'll be the the, the, the challenge for a future boyfriend and if he's prepared to step up then I admire him already um, so yeah nothing more to say on the issue at the moment <laughs> so yeah that's all the uh, miscellaneous uh, questions Thank you very much for joining me in this bumper end of year podcast. So that concludes the the final part. I uh, hope you found it interesting and three and a half hours worth of uh, of martial discussion hasn't been too much for you. Um, as I say, probably best listening to it in uh, small manageable chunks, I think. But again, I guess Christmas is the time for overindulgence. So if you're going to have a, a martial binge, now's the time to have it, I guess. Yeah, so thanks once again for everyone for the support in 2017. We've got some uh, new podcast coming soon i've got the interview with uh, jamie club coming we've got a podcast on the law set up so they'll be coming soon i uh, hope you have a great christmas regardless of the kind of year 2017's been for you if it's been a good one i hope you can build on that if it's a bad one i hope you can like leave that one behind you and use the difficulties you've experienced to propel you onwards and upwards to ever greater things so i hope 2018 proves to be your best year yet well, okay i'll speak to you soon thanks once again bye now